You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional audio resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Haggai chapter 2, if you got a Bible with you. Haggai chapter 2. We, uh, we've been in this book now for a month. It's a short book, four, two chapters, 38 verses, and four movements. Uh, we've seen three of them so far. We saw the issue of kingdom priority. Here's a people that have been released from captivity. They get to go back to Jerusalem. They get to build the temple where the glory of God will dwell. That's a great thing. And yet as the people got back to work, they instantly got discouraged and quit on the Lord's work and began building into their own kingdoms. And God sends along Haggai with the very first message to say, I have not liberated you that you would spend your days pouring into your kingdom, to spend your days pouring into your purses that have holes in them. I've liberated you for the glory of my name. I've liberated you that you might spend your days with a kingdom priority of my kingdom, of investing into a work that is eternal and can never be taken away from you. And and so he, he calls the people towards kingdom priority. But no sooner do they get back to work, discouragement sets back in again because you've got people that are looking at this heap of rubble and they're thinking this will never be as good as the temple we once knew. And so God sends Haggai in again to encourage the people in kingdom perspective that you, yes, it looks like a heap of rubble in you, but you're building into a glory that you cannot even fathom. You are building into a glory that is greater than what you can see. So you need to have a kingdom perspective so that you don't spend your days stuck in reverse, always looking through the rearview mirror, thinking about the good old days of when God's works were awesome and viewing what's in front of you with discouragement. No, 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 no. God is still on the throne. God is still alive and he has liberated you to look through the front windshield with faith, to believe that what is still to come is greater than what lies behind. And so to trust him in that work, kingdom perspective. And then two weeks ago, we looked at the issue of kingdom purity. Because as the people got back to work and they were zealous and they were excited, they started developing some bad theology. They believed that because they were working on these physical stones that were building this holy temple, that by touching these physical works, it made them holy. And God sends Haggai in and says, man, you've actually got it backwards. When you are a sinful, broken, fallen people, Anything that you touch will actually become defiled. You need a righteousness that's from within that does not come from your own works, but is given to you by grace. God's righteousness that starts cleansing you from within and then works its way to your hands. So that when you get to work in this kingdom priority, you're not working for righteousness, you're working from it. And so get back to work. Be the holy people that God has called you to be, that saved you to be, that has liberated you to be. Be that holy people set apart for him, but don't mistake where that holiness comes from. It comes from him by his grace. And let that grace compel you forward to serve him all the days of your life. Three messages we've seen so far. Now there's a fourth one, last message. And this one is altogether unique from the other three. If you'll notice in verse 20 of chapter 2, It's on the exact same day as the last message, the 24th day of the month. It is December 18th, 520 BC, the exact same day that the kingdom purity message came. So Haggai delivers that message. And then as soon as he's done, he turns around and delivers yet one more message. But notice in this message, it's not to all the people. 
Every message thus far has been as Zerubbabel, Joshua the high priest, and the whole remnant of 50,000 Jews that were there. This one is delivered to one person. Speak, in verse 21, speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. We have got a personal message for this man. And the reason is many scholars feel that of all the discouragements that the people had in coming back to Jerusalem and building this temple again, maybe there was none greater than Zerubbabel. Because if you remember, Zerubbabel, 60 years earlier, uh, it was his grandfather who was the king of Judah, King Jehoiakim, and he was a wicked king. And it was his idolatry and his wickedness that sent, that sent Judah into captivity by the Babylonians. That God allowed them to be enslaved for a season because of his idolatry. And so as a young man, Zerubbabel would have been a young boy when Jerusalem fell and they were taken in captivity. That would be hard to watch, to know that it was my family tree that brought this kind of um, consequence upon us and hurt and affected God's people. And now he's back to work and many feel that maybe he was part of that older generation that remembered what Solomon's temple looked like and was having a hard time moving forward. Even though he was charged to build it, maybe this was a hard time for him that where he, even he failed to see the significance of what he was building into. So God sends along Haggai the prophet to preach to him in a sense to say, I need you to lift your eyes up, Zerubbabel. I need you to see that you are building into something that you can't even understand yet. There is a day coming, an event that is coming that is going to be so glorious, and I'm going to use you as a part of it. And so this personal message, notice what it is that he says, starting in verse 21, God tells Haggai to tell Zerubbabel, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms, plural. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And I'm going to overthrow the horses and their riders. They're all going to go down, every one of them, by the sword of his brother. And so right out of the gate, we are given this prophecy, given to Zerubbabel, there is this event coming in which human thrones, the kingdoms of the world, are all going to come crashing down because the Lord is going to shake the earth and they're literally going to fall. And what's going to remain is going to be his throne. We'll see that in a minute. But this, this idea of this, this cataclysmic event that's going to happen, this supernatural almost event that's going to happen where all human power is overthrown once and for all, all injustice is put down. Now, my question is, have we seen this event yet? Have we seen an event in our lifetime or even going 2,600 years back to, to Haggai's day, to Zerubbabel's day, have we seen an event where all human kingdoms, their thrones have been dismantled and the throne of God is standing? Have we seen this literally on earth yet? No, we, we haven't, unless I missed something in my world history classes. I don't know. This sounds like a pretty significant event. And the truth is, it is a significant event. And the scriptures are going to speak to what this event is as Revelation unfolds. And I want to show you two places in your Bible 
where this exact prophecy in the New Testament is quoted. The first is in the book of Hebrews. So hold your place in Haggai, flip to your right or scroll down, keep going, and go all the way to the book of Hebrews in chapter 12. And you're going to see this prophetic event quoted 26, or I'm sorry, 600 years later. You're going to see this this event quoted as it still hadn't happened yet. And if you understand the book of Hebrews, Hebrews was written to a uh, dispersed group of Christians who were suffering persecution greatly. And because the persecution was so hard, it was causing many of them to second guess their faith and consider returning to the Judaism that they had once come from or to trade it all out as a whole and take on this new form of spirituality that was arising known as Gnosticism. Either way, it was a regression to to leave what you have been given by Christ and to forsake it to go back to something else. And the author of Hebrews writes to warn how foolish that is because there is nothing else to go back to. The only thing sure is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you depart from that, then you depart from the very salvation that has come for you. And it's not a question in Hebrews of whether you lose your salvation if you leave. The real question is, did you ever really have it to begin with? It's a term known as apostasy. One who gives the appearance of being a believer, walks, appears to walk with Christ for a number of time, and then ultimately walks away. And either in that moment, they're either proving to be a prodigal whom the Lord's going to chase down and love and bring back, or they're proving that they never really had it to begin with. The whole thing was a facade. And either way, Hebrews is warning Don't disregard the truth of the Lord for something lesser. And that's where we find ourselves in Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 25. The author says this, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking, meaning God in this moment. God is giving you a word that he is the true source of salvation. Don't refuse that voice and go for something else because we've seen other generations do that. And he quotes here in verse 25, or or at least synthesizes the story of the Exodus. He says, for if they, that's the Egyptians, did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, that's Moses, then much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Here's what he's saying You need to be careful not to spurn the voice of God and run to some other lesser idol that will not save you because the truth is that'll result in the judgment of God. Don't be like the Egyptians who were given warning after warning after warning 10 times. Let my people go. Worship the true God and yet they would not do it. They refused him who warned them, Moses. And as a result, they were judged. And the author of Hebrews is saying, don't refuse God, lest you be judged too. And what he does is he compares that judgment to the one that is coming in verse 26. He said, at that time, his voice shook the earth. God did, 10 plagues. But now he has promised. And listen to these words and see if they sound familiar. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. He drops Haggai chapter 2, verses 21 and 22 right here and says, if you refuse God, 
just like the Egyptians did. There is a day coming when judgment will come, when God's just justice will come and overthrow injustice, which happens to be you if you spurn his voice. And he gives this here, which is interesting because this was Hebrews. So by the time we get to the New Testament, that prophecy we read in Haggai still hasn't happened. This is still in the future, according to Hebrews. We haven't seen this cataclysmic event. And he goes on, and in case you're wondering, man, what is this event? What is this future event? Sounds like Armageddon. Sounds like some final battle we've read in Revelation. Are you sure this isn't just allegorizing this? It's not literal? Well, here's what I love about your New Testament. It interprets for you exactly what he's talking about. He interprets Haggai's prophecy in verse 27. This phrase, yet once more, meaning something that's still to come, indicates what is coming, which is the removal of things that are shaken. That is things that have been made, made by humans, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. There is a day coming when every human endeavor that has sought to replace God with their own ideologies, God will shake the earth and like a house of cards, they will fall. And only thing that will remain is God's kingdom left. What he's promised all along. That day is coming. And he says in verse 28, therefore let us be grateful that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken y'all. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. In other words, our God is not just a promise maker, he's a promise keeper. And this day will happen whether you believe it or not. It is going to happen. And so in Hebrews 12, we're given a picture of what this day looks like. We're still wondering, though, what is it? Like, what is this going to look like when it actually happens and the scriptures say, I'm glad you asked. Keep going. Keep scrolling down your page or turn to your right and get to Revelation 16. Revelation 16 is another passage where we're going to see this reference of this prophecy to Zerubbabel. Revelation, the apostle John is quarantined on the island of Patmos in a work camp under Emperor Domitian. And it's there that he's given a revelation from the angel through Jesus Christ about what is to come so that the church might have hope in a day of persecution. And what you see in Revelation is the progressive unveiling of the wrath of God, the just wrath of God. Uh, and when you think about the wrath of God, don't view that as like this negative ogre thing. View it as you would right today. When you turn on the news and you see the injustice that we've seen in Dallas, even in the past couple of weeks or across the globe that's going on right now, and that anger within you that wants to see that injustice made right, that's the wrath of God. That's what the wrath of God is doing. It's making what is wrong turned right. And he's pouring that out. There's a day coming where if you don't experience the justice you're seeking for in this lifetime, you can be assured it is coming according to Hebrews 12, according to Revelation 16, according to Haggai 2. It's coming. And here in verse 12 of Revelation 16, 
As this progressive line of judgments comes, seven seal judgments followed by seven trumpet judgments and then seven bowl judgments where the wrath is just poured out. We are in the sixth, next to last, final judgment. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up and this was to prepare the way for the kings of the east. So there are kingdoms to the east that are making their way. They are descending upon Israel. They are descending upon the Middle East and they are coming from these different places and the pathway for these kings to come and wage war against God himself has been made. And they are making their trek across. And John gets this vision and he sees here, I saw coming out of the mouth. And there's three characters that John lists here that are being used to entice those kingdoms to come. One is the dragon. And then out of the mouth, he saw the beast. And then out of the mouth was the fall of the false prophet. So here's these three characters. I don't know who they are exactly. The dragon, the beast, the false prophet, these three entities that are coming forth and out of their mouth. Now, remember, John has this vision and he, he can't really understand what he's seeing. He's grasping at the vision and trying to use common elements of his day to put pictorial language to what it is he's seeing. And he said, out of these three individuals, these three entities out of their mouth is like frogs are coming out, which that's just nasty, by the way, this vision of frogs coming out of your mouth, like David Blaine or something, some little trick going on here. But we see what they are in verse 14. They're demonic spirits. Whoever these three individuals are, they are demonically fueled. And what's coming out of their mouth is enticing language for the kingdoms to make war against God. And so this demonic spirits and they're performing signs as they go ahead to the kings of the whole world in order for them to assemble for the battle on the great day of God, the almighty. Now, I don't know about you. That's a scary moment right there. I wasn't alive. Neither were many of us, I think, when, uh, when Hitler was annexing Europe. And I don't know, can only imagine the fear not only for the Jew in that day, of course, but just the whole world as all the nations were coming together to go to war and thinking, is this the end of civilization as we know it? I mean, the Cuban Missile Crisis being 13 days away from having the eastern part of the United States annihilated. I mean, that's a, that's a terrifying thing. I can only imagine being in this day when all the kingdoms of the earth are making their way to the Middle East to wage war against the living God and the fear that must be there, especially if you're a Christian in that day. But here's what I love about the comfort of the Lord. In verse 15, notice it's in parentheses. Jesus is going to interject. Lest you think that these kingdoms are coming for your ultimate demise, you need to know this. Behold, I am coming. I am coming like a thief when you least expect it. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen as exposed to the Christian who's wondering, is this the end? Is everything I'd hoped for? Is it over? Oh, hang in there because I'm coming for you. And though these armies will wage war, I'm coming to put an end to it. 
And you be sober-minded. You be alert. Don't be lulled to sleep in this period of waiting. Don't be caught literally with your pants down right here and exposed here. You be dressed, nimble, ready to go. Because when I come, it's going to come quick. And in verse 16, he returns here and he tells them, they assembled them, these kingdoms assembled at the place in Hebrew that is called literally in Hebrew, Armageddon, which we translate Armageddon. Now, I don't know what pops in your head when you hear the word Armageddon. I probably have to do a lot of deconstruction of Bruce Willis and some other Hollywood movies that have gone before us or whatever it is, these big just Hollywood versions of this. Har-Megiddo, Har is the term for a little mountaintop. Megiddo is the name of it. I've had the privilege of not only being there many times, but getting to teach this passage on top of that mountain as it overlooks the Jezreel Valley. This little mountain, this little Har, has 26 or 27 different layers of civilization that have been built up that they've excavated underneath it. It has seen more wars, it is said, in this valley than maybe any other place on earth. And in this day, there will be one more that will show up here. And what's crazy is when you think, even in the church world, you think Armageddon, you think this big final battle. Do you realize the battle isn't really a battle? It's not even a lot. They're going to gather at Armageddon, at Armageddon. They're going to then trek down the Jezreel Valley east. Then they'll hook a right, go south into Jerusalem. And right as they get ready to wage war, Messiah comes right in and takes them all down. It's not even going to be a fair fight. It's not even going to last more than seconds. Armageddon right here is what's being described. This, this end of day, and whether you hold this as literal or you're holding this as even allegorical, wherever your camp lands, the truth is it is describing a reality that our God will put an end to all injustice. Human kingdoms will literally be taken down. And in verse 16, they assembled there at Armageddon, verse 17, the seventh angel then comes and pours out his last and final bowl of God's wrath into the air. And a loud voice comes out of the temple from the throne saying, it is finished. You heard those words before? You get them two times in your New Testament, both by Jesus. The first time is when our Messiah goes to the cross and comes in his first advent to ransom us from the penalty and the power of sin. When he came and was nailed to a cross and shed his blood, that our sins might be forgiven. And he rose from the dead that death and Satan and his power would be conquered. That was the first time we heard the words, it is finished. There are no other lambs that need to be sacrificed because the lamb of God has come to save us from the sins of the world. And it is finished. It's sealed. It's secure. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you've placed your faith in Jesus for your salvation, not your own works, but his, it's finished. You can rest. But there's a second time you see it and it's right here. It's when the son of man returns again. Only this time it's not to suffer and die. This time it's not even just to take it take out the penalty and the power of sin, it's to eradicate the very presence of sin. 
when he will come and he will overthrow all kingdoms and he will set up his kingdom. He'll make a new heavens, a new earth and establish the throne and the shalom of God on this earth forever. That's the day we're all longing for. And this happens here, but I want you to notice the language in verse 18. See if this doesn't sound familiar. This is why we're here. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. And notice a great quaking, a great shaking, an earthquake such as there has never been seen since man was on the earth. Experienced my first earthquake a couple years ago when I was in California, in Fresno. Never felt that. Shaking my bed in the middle of the night. I thought somebody was under the bed messing with me. I jumped up. There was nobody under there. It freaked me out. I then thought it was demonic. I didn't know what was going on. So I'm reading scripture, I'm praying, and then it happens again. I'm like, oh, it's an earthquake. That was fun. That was fun. It's a lot of fun. This is not going to be fun. This is a shaking of the earth like we've never seen. San Andreas doesn't hold a candle to this thing. And with it, we're told in verse 19 that the great city is split into three parts. And the cities of the nations fall. Sound familiar? God's shaking the heavens and the earth and the kingdoms are falling. And in that moment, God remembered Babylon the great the one who had waged war against him. And he's going to make her drink from the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And in that moment, every island fled away. No mountains were to be found. That's a bad day when Hawaii and Everest go, we gone, and they just take off. And hailstones, about 100 pounds each. I don't know about y'all, we live in Texas, y'all. We get hail every year. I ain't never seen a hundred pound hailstone. I don't want to see. I don't have a carport big enough to support that right there. But this hundred pound hailstone will fall from heaven. And what do the people do? Do they fall on their knees and they, they take a lesson from the Egyptians and this time they repent and they plead for mercy? What do they do while this is happening? They curse God for the plagues. Just like the Egyptians did. Because the plague was so severe. We'll stop right there. I want you to see a prophecy is given from Haggai to Zerubbabel. There is a day coming. I do not believe we've seen that day yet. Hebrews didn't see that day yet. Revelation hasn't seen that day yet. It's coming. But rest assured, it will come where God will overthrow all the nations and establish his throne on earth forever. And so we will be with God forevermore. It's a glorious thing. The justice and the mercy of God are glorious. But I want you to go back to Haggai for a moment here. And we'll close this out in this book because here's the deal. Haggai's, Haggai's saying this, Zerubbabel's hearing this. And Zerubbabel may be like you and I, is ex- he's got to be excited. He is under Persian rule right now. They are not free. And the people are longing for the day when they won't be under the world's rule. They'll be once again under God's rule physically on earth, as the prophet said would happen. And so this is good news. Zerubbabel's got to hear this and go, this is great. You mean a Messiah is going to come 
and he's going to overthrow all this injustice and he's going to set up his shop here on earth forever. I'm in. That's awesome. But one question, Haggai, one question. What's that got to do with me? Why are you telling just me this? And this is why this becomes so deeply personal. I want you to see this in verse 23. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheatiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. And then the book ends. Kind of like Jonah. You're just like, what? No more. Give me more. What, what does that mean? Zerubbabel knew exactly what this meant. This was deeply personal to him. And so you got you to understand what he's hearing. He's hearing a future event that's going to happen. And when that future event happens, God's going to use Zerubbabel on that day. Now, if you're reading your Bible correctly, I got two questions in mind. I'm going, okay, how does that happen? Either this event has already happened and it happened in Zerubbabel's day so that he could be used for it. He was around when the kingdoms fell, but I don't think we've read that anywhere in our Bible in the Old Testament. And um, the other thing is, okay, well, maybe, maybe he's still alive because that wouldn't be weird. 2,600 years later, he's still alive, so he'll still be around when this day happens, right? But here's the deal. We know he's not alive. Uh, Ezra tells us, by the way, you know, they're building the temple here in, in Haggai. Eventually, that temple will be built. They'll finish the foundation. They'll finish the temple. And they will hold a dedication service, kind of like we had a commissioning service last week. They will have their own for the temple. And when they do, Ezra, if you go read Ezra, lists the names of every person that was present for their dedication. Guess whose name is not in that list? Zerubbabel. Many scholars believe that he died before they ever finished the temple. He never got to see the work of the temple completed, let alone see this day that's coming. So how is he going to use, how's God going to use Zerubbabel for an event that Zerubbabel's not even around for? He's dead. He's going to use him as a type. He's going to use him like or as a signet ring. What's a signet ring? Y'all have seen enough movies, probably read enough books, you know, you know what a signet ring is? When a king had that giant Super Bowl ring on his right hand, the right hand of power, typically, what was on that ring? Do you remember? It was insignia, signifying something, it was signifying his authority. It was a picture of the crest or a symbol that represented the, the authority of that king, representing all the power over that kingdom. And what that king would do, oftentimes when that king issued a certified decree, like Cyrus did when he issued the decree that the Jews could return to Jerusalem, oftentimes that decree was written out on, on a scroll on parchment. They'd roll it up and they'd put a seal made of what? Hot wax, right? And then what would the king do? Take that signet ring and imprint that insignia into that wax, sealing it, certifying this is the official authority of the king, may this will happen. God says on this future day, I'm going to use you, Zerubbabel, like a signet ring. You're going to be used as representative of my authority to judge the nations. I'm going to use you. Why does that matter? Let me 
try to string some things together to show you why this is so personal to Zerubbabel. God made a promise in 2 Samuel 7 that he was going to raise up a king unlike any other king. A king through David's line who will sit on David's throne and will never cease his ruling and reigning. He will sit on that throne and he will reign for all eternity, not just over Jerusalem, over the world. And so what happened is David knew that wasn't going to be him. He was told it wasn't going to be him. He's dying. So is it going to be his son? Solomon comes along. And you got to imagine people that knew this prophecy in 2 Samuel 7 are hoping, okay, Solomon, that king we've been waiting for. But then Solomon dies. And then Solomon's two sons actually divide the kingdom. One takes the north, one takes the south. And then we're like, okay, well, how's that going to work? There's two. And then God says, well, that line's actually going to come through the south. It's going to come through Judah. Okay, so is it, is it this son? No, he died. Is it, is it this one? And you start going down the line and every king you're wondering, is this the Messiah? Is this the one we've been waiting for? And you scroll down the line of the kings of Judah and you get all the way down eventually to this King Jehoiakim who's ruling over Judah. But he's wicked. And he is so wicked and idolatrous that God curses him and the authority of that kingdom. And, and Jeremiah, I want you to listen to these words. Jeremiah 22. God tells Jehoiakim, as I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah, Coniah is another name for Jehoiakim, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, though you were a signet ring, on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and I would give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. Jehoiakim was Zerubbabel's granddaddy. He was king over Judah. And he was so wicked, God cursed him with that curse and said, I'm pulling the signet ring off of you. You're done. This whole kingdom promise, you're so wicked, you're gone. I'm allowing the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar to come in here and take you and all the Jews and haul you off for the next 50 years. And that's exactly what happened. And remember from week one, I told you, Zerubbabel, he was next and he was two in line. His daddy, Sheatiel, probably would have been next and then it would have been him to be king of Judah and a part of that promise of 2 Samuel 7, but now the ring has been pulled off. And the question is, will God ever put that ring on again? Is that it? Has God failed his promises? Will he not bring forth a king to reign on the throne forever? Has he failed that? Has he somehow dropped the ball on his people? Will he, will he just let them go off into idolatry and into captivity the rest of their days. And now that they're back, he still can't be king. The best he's going to be is governor because the Persians are ruling over him. So is it done? And now Haggai comes in and goes, oh, Zerubbabel, though I took the ring off your granddaddy, I'm putting it back on with you. I have not forsaken my promises. It is through you and your line that that Messiah will come. And he will overthrow the nations and establish his throne forever. So be of hope, O Zerubbabel. Get back to work, O Zerubbabel. I'm not finished yet. Now he died. 
Never getting to see the reality of that. But you know what's beautiful? I mentioned this also in week one. If you go and open up Matthew and you read the genealogy, you remember all those names that we skip over in order to get to Matthew 2. Matthew 1, if you read the genealogy that goes from Abraham all the way down to Jesus, you know whose name is in that genealogy? Zerubbabel. The list that he wasn't on for Ezra, he is on in Matthew. He is used by God out of 10 generations after Zerubbabel. There will be a little boy, Zerubbabel, who will come. He'll be wandering around this temple that you've built. And parents will be frantically looking for him. He'll be sitting there at the throne of the, at the feet of the rabbis and saying, where else would I have been but in my father's house? This is the same boy who'll grow up and minister and perform signs and wonders and miracles, validating the fact that his kingdom has come. And then he'll be dragged outside of the walls of this temple and he'll be crucified on a cross for your sins, Zerubbabel, so that you can be cleansed. And then he will conquer the grave. He'll raise from the dead and he'll ascend to the right hand of the Father where he is seated now. He is on that Davidic throne that has now been inaugurated but still hasn't been consummated. But that day is coming, Zerubbabel, when that king will step off that throne and descend to the earth and he will put down all human institution and kingdoms and establish the work of his throne for the rest of eternity. You, O Zerubbabel, will be used as a sign of my authority in that day. So persevere. And isn't that beautiful? What a message of hope. And y'all, what I, what I want you to see is this is not just a message of hope for Zerubbabel. This is a message of hope for us. In fact, this whole book of Haggai that we've been in, all four of these movements, it's for us too. 2,600 years later. Because let me frame it this way. Were we too not once held captives in our own slavery? Yes, to sin. We too were once held captive, held bondage by the prince of the power of this air and the, the sin that so easily entangles us, alienated from our God for all eternity. But our God so loved this world that he came and he sent his son Jesus that his son Jesus might come as the lamb of God to, to offer himself up on the altar in our place so that he might shed his blood and by transferring our trust from our works to his work on the cross, we too have been forgiven. We have been redeemed. We have been rescued. We have been adopted by God and we have been liberated and brought forth into the newness of life. But we have not been set free, church, so that we would spend our days investing into our kingdoms that we're told are just gonna be shaken and fall down one day. We have been given a kingdom priority that we might spend our days investing into an eternal kingdom that can never be shaken, that can never be taken away, that will last forever. The kingdom of God made possible by the blood of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, it is ours. So let's spend our days in kingdom priority. And as we do so, let's be careful because discouragement will come persecution will come. There are going to be days when we're going to be tempted in the midst of this kingdom work to want to look back and think that's only when God was alive. 
That's only when God was good. That's only when God was on the throne. No, no, no. He is still on the throne. He has not forsaken his people. And so as we commit to this kingdom priority, let's look through the front windshield with kingdom perspective of faith and trust that the glory that is in front of us is greater than the one that's behind us. And let's persevere. And as we do so, let's be that people that he has redeemed for his own possession, a people who have been bought by the blood of Christ, who've been set apart for this work to be holy and righteous for his glory and his namesake. But understanding where that righteousness comes from. It does not come from the religious works that we do in the name of Jesus. That righteousness comes as a means of grace given to us by the sacrifice of Christ so that we would spend our days pouring into that kingdom, not working for that righteousness, but working from it because we've already been given it. And as we do so, oh, church, may we be a people of hope. May we be a people who understand that the injustices in the world around us, the brokenness in the world around us is not today as it will one day be. And by God's grace, we get to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom right now, pushing back darkness, pushing back injustice with the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing that the consummation of all that is still coming. And so even on our worst days as a church, in our worst suffering, there is a hope that transcends circumstances because our God is not just a promise maker. He is a promise keeper and he will bring this about. So hold on. That is a message of hope for us. That's how we're intended to live. I don't know about y'all, man. I need that encouragement. On my most broken of days, I need to know. I sat through a conference this weekend that was so brutally painful, talking about sexual abuse, talking about the atrocities that are not just in the world around us, in the churches around us. And just longing, God, just send Jesus now. But I tell you, it's the hope that compels you to keep going. The hope that our God is with us today. He's healing today. And even if he doesn't heal in this lifetime, he, he will heal in the one to come. I don't know about y'all, one of the favorite things my family loves to do, we've done this for years, is we love to watch YouTube videos of military reunions. Have you seen this, the homecomings? Good gosh, just a basket of tears for hours watching some dad step off a plane or surprise his kid at, at an elementary school and the kid sees him and just runs, oh, it's just like, ah, just starts coming down or military mom coming back and, and the, the family or the spouse reunited. Even the dog ones get you, man. <laughs> and I think the reason we love those videos, I'm like, why are we so drawn to these things? It's because there's something innate, hardwired within us that longs for that future homecoming. It longs for the day when we won't have to take Jesus by faith. We'll get to see him by sight. And it's that day that compels us to move forward. Proverbs 13 says, hope deferred is what makes the heart grow sick, but a longing fulfilled. It's like a tree of life. Our God will fulfill all of our longings. And so with that in mind, let's press forward in full faith as Northway Church to bring glory to God by making disciples of Jesus Christ so that we can see everybody around us encounter the truth, the goodness, and the beauty of Jesus. Amen? That's why we're here. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. 
We meet every Sunday at 9, 11, and 5.30, and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.